I'm Stephanie Cox, and this is Mobile Matters. Today, I'm joined by Ada Rose Cannon. She's the co-chair of the WC3 Immersive Web Working Group and a developer advocate for Samsung. She's previously worked at the Financial Times and PlayStation. In this episode, Ada and I talk a lot about what it means to be a developer advocate at Samsung and a co-chair on W3C, why she's excited about bringing AR and VR to the web, and where she believes the future of the web is headed. And make sure you stick around to the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways so that you can not only think about mobile differently, but implement it effectively. Welcome to the show, Ada. So now you're at Samsung and you're a developer advocate. What does that exactly mean? What's, what are you charged with doing? As a developer advocate for Samsung, the very core goal of the role is Samsung has a web browser that not a lot of people have heard of. It's called Samsung Internet. And we have a surprisingly huge market share. We have 7% mobile usage worldwide coming in behind Chrome and Safari. In some European countries, we have up to 16% mobile market share, which is huge. Whoa, like that's on the, huge. Yeah, on the scale of the web, these are like millions of people are using our web browser. But not a lot of developers have heard about us because they get their brand new phone and the first thing they do is install Chrome on it, which for us isn't that great. But lots of normal phone users out there still use Samsung Internet, which is really fantastic. And we try and implement enough features now that people on other non-Samsung devices, like we're trying to get them to want to install our browser because we're a really good browser. So we're we're based on um, the Chromium project. So we're kind of we're kind of like Chrome-ish, but because we're a fork of Chrome, every time we have to upstream the browser to update, it takes a long time. So we're usually lagging around um, six months behind Chrome in terms of browser features. But if there's something that's really important, then we'll then we'll try and get it into the browser a bit earlier. But we're um, but we do. Um, we have open betas, so developers can try out the next version. And yeah, it's um, we're really responsive to feedback and try and like make our browser as good as it can be. But that's just like the core goal. Like everything else I do around that is probably takes up the majority of my time. So as well as raising awareness for the browser, we try and get feedback from developers and find out what they think is really important in the web and make sure that's something which we're covering as well. We also do, um, we're also involved in lots of standardization work. I personally am co-chair of the Immersive Web Working Group, which looks to bring virtual reality and augmented reality to the web. Which I, which I am excited about and cannot wait for. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hopefully it's gonna, gonna be really good. The prototype web VR APIs um, were incredibly popular. And I'm, I'm hoping to see the same kind of uptake with browser manufacturers and developers with the WebXR device API as there was with the WebVR API. So fingers crossed there. So yeah, hopefully there should be um, more information about stuff that's happening with the, um, immersive, in the immersive web space soon. So for those people who don't understand like what WC3 is and kind of how that works and what the goal is, can you just explain that for the audience if they're not familiar? So the W3C is a standardization body for web APIs. They, they don't decide what gets into web browsers because that's what web browser manufacturers do. What they do is they kind of gather together all of the interested parties um, of people who are involved in the web 
So companies with, with big investment in web projects, like media organizations like the Financial Times or um, the Guardian or the BBC, or um, uh, companies that have a browser of their own, like Samsung, Mozilla, Google, Apple, Microsoft, like these are all the kind of companies that are involved in the W3, in the W3C. And they contribute to standards to try and get agreement on what the web should look like. And whether or not browsers implement those features is up to the browser. So in an ideal world, every web browser would implement every single feature they get standardized. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> that would be really wonderful. But building a browser is really, really difficult. So browsers often have to pick and choose which features get, uh, which features get prioritized. Well, and then the other thing about it too, that I think a lot of people don't understand, because um, one of the things that I hear all the time around Apple is why is their web browser not, you know, kind of doing the, able to do the same things that Google is and things like that. And one of the things I say is part of that's their investment in the web itself and whether or not they're putting the right enough resources to even be able to do some of the standardization or functionality that you guys might all agree on. Building a web browser is a humongous financial investment, like huge. And not everyone has the resources Google does to focus on, on building a web browser. Because for Google, the web is one of their key markets. Like if there wasn't a web, there probably wouldn't be a Google as we know it today. In addition, when you have this kind of limited resources, the companies have to pick and choose what they work on. So there are features which Safari has, which are head and shoulders above that of any other browser or in WebKit in general, because that's what the browser, like the people in charge of what gets developed at the browser choose to focus on. And it's the same in, it's the same in all browsers. At Samsung, we're really invested in progressive web apps and uh, web payments and virtual reality. Other browser manufacturers might choose to be involved in some of the really cutting features that come out of CSS and making sure they get implemented really early. So I wouldn't say like they're so far behind because there's definitely areas where Safari are ahead, but it would be really nice if they could get on board the PWA bandwagon a bit more and, and really get up to the same level, which some of the other browser manufacturers are at. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> And yeah, saying that, I hope that we see the same level of uptake with the WebXR device API. That's that's what I really hope as well. So you, you mentioned PWAs, so progressive web apps, one of my personal favorite topics. So how did you get started into PWAs? Like, what was your story around how you first started, heard about them, got involved with them? So I started working on PWAs at the Financial Times. So Financial Times were building a... Mo like a mobile web only, well, no, just a web only app before anyone else was that I'm aware of. So this was before PWAs were, were even a sparkle in Alex Russell's eye. <laughs> I love that. And they were, so it all comes about due to a, an interesting point of contention with a marketplace of a particular mobile phone manufacturer who wanted to take a cut of Financial Times subscriptions, whereas the subscriptions were the majority of the income for the Financial Times, which wouldn't really work. So what they figured instead is that instead of releasing an app through a particular um, app store, they would um, release it through the web instead. And so they did this by building a web page that did 
offline using AppCache. So AppCache is, a, is an old API for making pages work offline. It is not a good API. It is, <laughs> it is horrible to use. And if you make a mistake, you can get your app into a state where it's impossible to update ever again and will just remain in a broken state. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a scary thing to do. So um, we have to do lots of clever stuff to work around the fragility of the AppCache API. We, we synced data to the device and we used AppCache to like bootstrap the site, which we then put all the information out of either local storage or, um, or index DB and, and build a fully responsive app, which with one URL would work great on Blackberry phones back in the day. Um, it worked great on the early iOS devices on early Android devices. It was a, a Windows 8 application. It was um, it was also just like a a mob, like a desktop optimized site, so you could go to it through the web browser. And it really showed me just the power of what you can do with the web. Like one distribution, we were hitting all of these platforms all at the same time. And initially, I was like, "Well, sure, this is great, but there's no way we're going to get like businessmen to be to open up the menu and tap add the home screen to install this app to their um." To their device but they were like I'd, I'd be on the tube to London and I would see all these businessmen in suits around me using the Financial Times web app on their phones and I would know that they installed that through the web browser and that kind of I was gonna say how cool is that to see in real life something that you've built being used it was pretty amazing especially um like whenever I'd see a feature which I personally developed, like getting used, and it would just be like a real moment of pride. And it was amazing to see because it was so performant. So I'm like, my my background has always been in real-time performance. So not just performance of loading a, a web app over the network, but loading it, um, but the, the speed it runs at whilst it's running on the device. So seeing this web app running at great frame rates on low-powered BlackBerry devices was just beautiful to see. And I was like, yes, this is really paying off. And then you had progressive web apps kind of come out. And what have you thought about the movement really since Google gave them a name and started promoting PWAs? What have you seen just from an industry perspective happen? Because I was kind of there at the start and watched progressive web apps grow out of the work of, of Andrew Betts, who was my boss at the time, and Alex Russell, everyone else involved in the progressive web app conversation. It's been kind of heartwarming to see it slowly like gain traction. And when Samsung asked me to join them to be a, a web developer advocate, one of the things that really struck me was that they were really interested in pushing progressive web apps as part of their platform. And that's when I felt like, yes, like it's, it's not just a single browser pushing their vision. It's it's multiple browsers coming together, coming together as to build something that could enable developers to have this great experience that I've been doing for years. That's where it feels like it's a movement, right? It's not just an initiative. It's a, a movement that's happening across so many different browsers, so many developers. To me, it's been really exciting to see the last, you know, three and a half, four years where I feel like it's been named, has started to gain traction, but also you mentioned like 
you know, slowly growing. Do you think there's a reason why PWAs haven't had kind of that hockey stick growth where literally there's, you know, thousands of brands using them? Uh, I think there's a few things that come into this. So partly it's companies will initially, when they're looking to build their first app-like experience, they'll want to build an app so that the CEO can have it on his mobile phone and show it to his friends. And so the first thing they'll, they wouldn't even think about other platforms. Like the CEO will have a top of the line iPhone and will want to build an, an app for the, for the Apple store. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people with senior leaders. They're like, we need an app. I'm like, but why do we need an app? Well, so we can have it on your phone. But what would it do? It does. Well, we need an app. But, exactly. But why? It's this kind of thinking. <laughs> it's the, it's the thinking we need an app before they need to, before they're thinking about what their requirements are. So if we're lucky, they'll be like, oh yeah, we're going to build an app that both works on iOS and Android. And then they'll be like, oh yeah, we should probably have a website or something for people looking at our thing through the desktop, I guess, which would then link to the app store and for their respective platforms. It's definitely this, web apps are definitely an afterthought. So it seems to be that that when when companies have exhausted all other options, then they're like, okay, let's, let's give this web thing a go. We seem to have consistent engagement through our web, but they seem to drop off and they go to the app store. Maybe we could do something and actually make the web the product. And that's when people start looking at the web as, as the main platform. It also doesn't help that the companies that have had huge successes with web apps don't like to talk about it because suddenly it turns from, oh, this is an interesting experiment to this is now our edge over our competitors. So we don't want to talk about it. So it's definitely the kind of thing where I wish like more startups, when they're thinking of building something, think about the their target platform before they think about what's going to look great to showing to my friends in the pub. That's a really great point. One of the things that I have noticed when I talk to people, whether they're business leaders or developers, there's sometimes, unless you are a web developer, you have experience doing that. If you're just a traditional software engineer that maybe is more focused on, you know, developing for iOS or Android or something like that, they don't necessarily always understand how much progress the web has made and how much more you can do on it today. How do you think about educating people on that? So yeah, educating people about the amazing new things the web can do is is literally a cornerstone of my job. That's one of the things I love and why, why I wanted to have you on the show is you write so much great content about different ways to think about different things or how you implemented something that to some extent, it's kind of almost like a how to do some amazing stuff on the web. Yeah, it, the web is so powerful. There's APIs, which, which I think a lot of people wouldn't even think would be on the web. Like the web Bluetooth API is, is a low level API for controlling Bluetooth devices through the web. So you can get a drone, go to a website and then remotely control that drone from the web, which is amazingly crazy. And that's just like one small feature. Like the web is getting incredibly performant. And it feels to me there's also like an issue of not just app developers have kind of given up on the web and don't think it's it can do all that much. I think a lot of web developers feel the same way. 
so it's a bit background to where I'm coming from here. So when I was building web apps for the Financial Times, building for the web was incredibly difficult. Uh, browser support was extremely flaky. There was a lot of APIs that had very patchy implementation across browsers. The, the rendering engines for the browsers behaved extremely differently. There was, there was lots of edge cases in all kinds of browsers. And this made it, as a developer, this made it extremely difficult because you had to choose between, do I manually handle every edge case I encounter um, or do I just use a library that I assume will handle everything? But the web has come a long, a long way in the past six years. And so now the rendering engines for the different browsers have much fewer differences. As in, they're still separate implementations, but there's much more robust testing and working together between the browsers to ensure a consistent experience. On top of that, a lot of the features which we used to rely on libraries for are now baked into the web itself. So we used to include libraries for doing grid layouts. Well, CSS Grid has that framework built into the browser. We used to include libraries for doing DOM manipulation like jQuery. That's all built into the, um, into the DOM APIs these days. For stuff like detecting whether a certain element is on the screen, we don't need a library with that anymore. There's the intersection observer. And then even on a higher level, so loads of developers really want to build suites of components which they can use and combine together. So the first thing they do is go to a component framework like, like React or Angular, whereas web components have amazing support ac um, across all major browsers these days. You don't have to build websites to which still work exactly the same on IE6. And I think we need to get developers to start thinking about, look at the platform, see what's there. You don't have to build the same experience everywhere. So at places where features aren't available, fall back or to a simpler feature, or you don't have to deliver the same experience to every browser. So Internet Explorer can get, like IE6 can get a, like a full back rendered of the content just using normal HTML and CSS. And then on an evergreen browser, like, like new Chrome or new Firefox or Edge, um, or Safari, you're going to see um, the latest, greatest experience using all of the new APIs the web has to offer. So I really hope we start seeing more web developers taking advantage of what's there already. Because if we start using these big frameworks, you end up shipping this huge um, package to the user, which just don't won't work for a lot of people. Because when you're shipping like four megabytes of JavaScript, all of that four megabytes has to load. And if a single byte fails on the wire, then you've lost it. The whole thing is um, has failed. The user's gonna get nothing. They're just gonna see a white page. And this is unacceptable because this is the kind of thing that gives the web itself a bad experience and then stops people viewing the web as a viable platform for building their apps on. So it's like a, a negative spiral of developers building bad experiences because they've only had bad experiences and goes round and round. It's interesting that you say that. A lot of times when I talk to people, I kind of feel the same way about native mobile apps. 
when they first came out, the ones that were built, like when the App Store launched in 2008, and there's only like 550, like they were, they were actually, some of them were actually helpful. But now we've got, you know, millions in the App Store. And there's so many bad examples of them where people have delivered a bad user experience, done completely wrong things with the data that you give them. And now it's created from consumers. It's kind of like backlash of, I don't want to go download an app anymore because there's a lot of friction to it. It takes up space in my phone, but also half the time it's not helpful to me. It doesn't really help me do what I want to do. And at the same point with the web is a lot of times an entire platform can be impacted by people not making the right choices. And I think that's a real shame about apps because one advantage apps have with them being inside the wall gardens of app stores is that app stores have the power to create the apps that go onto their stores. And often they'll just let anything go up there, whether it's a rip off of a, um, whether they've ripped off another app or they're doing something bad with user data. And it's these kind of bad experiences where no one is having the, the best situation they could. And I think that's one definite advantage the web has, especially these days where users are a lot more concerned about privacy. The web has a lot of privacy guarantees built in by default because the web platform is user first. Like features are implemented so that they will benefit the user before um, and protect the user's privacy and security. So there are some features apps have which aren't isn't in the web which the web will never implement because they'll impact the privacy of users. I'm hoping it's one of the things where apps have dropped the ball a little bit. I'm hoping the web can pick it up and run. I always say that with every new technology or enhancement we have, we have an opportunity to do the right thing and create the best user experience and really think about things the way that we would want to be treated as consumers. Otherwise, what ends up happening is consumers hate it, and then we end up getting regulated, which is, you know, a lot of the reason why like GDPR ex- existed is that a lot of companies made bad decisions with data, and so the government said, we need to come in and put some regulations on it because you guys couldn't make your couldn't make good choices. That's actually a really good point, and there's a very similar story in the web. So I think one of the places where the web messed up a little bit is push notifications. Push notifications were a technology I was very excited about initially because it brought to the web a power which which apps have had for a long time. And granted, we should have saw then that apps weren't doing push notifications very well. And then we brought them to the web with the warning of, hey, push notifications are really good. But if you do push notifications badly, then you're probably going to give users a bad taste for push notifications, not just for you, but for all websites. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's happened. Push notifications have been abused by many website builders. Everyone. (laughs) Yeah, they just got stuck on every website asking for push notifications when you first land on the page. And now everyone hates push notifications. And what could have been something that would have been really powerful and beneficial to everyone in the web has become something which unfortunately, is now um, something which web browsers are, are, I'm not going to say rolling back, but providing a lot more features to control them. For example, like, don't show me any more push notifications from this offers from this domain or, or just disable push notifications entirely. 
or just think, you know, as a website, think about even when you ask for it. One of the things I hate is when I go to a website for the first time, it's like, would you like to opt in for notifications? Like, I just went to your website. I don't even know if I like your company or, you know, if I'm re- if it's a media place, I don't know if I like the articles and the content you have. Why don't you wait a few minutes to see if I'm engaging with a couple of pages, spending time, and then ask me. Or even, like, ask the user, like, in the page itself, like, at the bottom of an article, and it's just like, oh, you managed to read that entire article. If you want to read more, click here, and, and we'll ask if you want push notifications rather than doing it on first load because it's all these kind of anti-patterns where often users don't love your content enough to stick with it like often often i will land on a page and then if i can't immediately decline the gdpr notification with a single button i'm just going to bounce and when you go to website now and you've got okay no i don't want push notifications i don't want to let you track me Yes, okay, I see you have cookies, accept. But then by the time you've closed the pop-up advert, you've done four clicks before you've even seen any content. And it's this kind of experience which is making the web worse. And it's taking value out of the web. I completely agree. And it's it's not just damaging the brands of the, the companies who's actually doing the bad practices. It damages the web as a whole, which is incredibly sad. Well, and hearing you talk about it, one of the things that popped to my mind was how many companies still do like an interstitial when you come to their page and they're like, go to the app store and download my app. And I'm like, I'm, I'm on my desktop. I'm not going to go to the app store and download your app. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why, why, why can't you just give me what I want now? Like, and why can't you tell me what the app is going to do and look like because, and, and why I should bother. Stop forcing me to go download an app and thankful for face ID because I never remember my app, my app store password. It's just interesting. So speaking of just the web in general, what do you see as the biggest opportunities the web has moving forward? And what do you want to see happen? I really, really see immersive devices being the future of handsets, like being the future of how we're going to engage with web content. And I don't mean in the next two years, I mean, in the next seven to 10 years, like long-term future immersive devices, like augmented reality devices are getting better and better and smaller and smaller. And it's going to become a tipping point when they just enter our lives as a normal way to experience technology. And just like mobile phones haven't replaced the desktop, I don't think immersive devices are going to replace the handset, but I can definitely see them being engaged with our being engaged with our life a lot more so that we can engage with the web without being without actually looking at a screen by having stuff in our peripheral vision and on our and on our wrists and through our web connected devices like i think the web is going to become part of our environment rather than part of little little black rectangles so i think by having the web ready to engage with virtual reality and augmented reality devices and with web of things technologies i think the the web will still have a place in the future because nothing lasts forever and i don't think the web is going to be around for all eternity and i think all we can do is make the web last longer 
And I think by being prepared for the new ways we'll engage with content, the web will have a place in the future. Now let's talk about what you would like to see brands do on the web. So if you could wave kind of like a magic wand, what would you want some of the biggest brands in the world to be doing on the web? Okay, so I have a few things here. So just from like a technical architecture kind of thing, I would love to see a lot more brands weighing the weight of their products so that instead of shipping multi-megabyte React apps that require the latest smartphones to use, um, I'd like to see brands start shipping apps which come in at the at under 100 kilobytes, like extremely light that run very well on low-end hardware. Because the future of the web isn't English-speaking and um, on high-end state-of-the-art iPhones. It's running on, on much lower power devices in non-English speaking countries. And I'd love to see brands engage with audiences they don't even know they have yet. So doing a lot more internationalization of their, of their products and making, building websites that work for, work for everyone. And there's one thing which I'd like to see happen culturally in the web rather than like as a technological thing. So the web is having a large problem with hate speech at the moment. And I'd love to see a lot more active moderation to, to remove hate speech from social media platforms like YouTube and Twitter. That would be amazing. So yeah, there's, there's some of the, the ways I'd love to see the web go in the future. I have to say thank you again to Alex Russell at Google for suggesting I speak with Ada. She has a wealth of knowledge about everything tied to the web, and I honestly could spend hours reading the great content she's written about the web. I absolutely love chatting with her, and there's so much more from our conversation that I literally couldn't fit into this episode, so stay tuned for an upcoming episode of From the Cutting Room Floor in a few weeks. I also had the privilege to speak with another developer advocate at Samsung that happens to be one of her colleagues, and I'll be sharing my conversation with him in next week's episode. Now let's get to my favorite part of the show where we talk about how to implement my top takeaways in your business. So let's dive into my top three takeaways from my conversation with Ada and what you can expect to hear in next week's episode when I chat with another developer advocate at Samsung. First, before Alex Russell unveiled Progressive Web Apps in 2015, the Financial Times team was already working on a web app that was honestly trying to achieve a lot of the same functionality that we know in PWAs today. And as Ada mentioned, there's absolutely nothing like seeing people out in the world using the technology you've built on the web. I loved her story of being on the tube in London and seeing businessmen actually using part of the product that she built. Next, we've got to stop this ongoing cycle of wanting to build a native app before we even know what we're trying to achieve with it. And spoiler alert, native apps are often not the right method to deliver the user experience to begin with. Progressive web apps are a great example of how you can deliver app-like functionality to users, allow them to save an icon to the home screen, while only developing it once and having it work across all operating systems. Finally, the web has advanced so much and is so much more powerful today than a lot of people realize. With that, we all have this responsibility to create really delightful user experiences and being prompted to subscribe to notifications or opt in the email the first time I hit your website isn't one of them. 
Let's all try and think about creating user experiences that we as consumers would actually enjoy. And just to make sure we're clear, it's not by prompting me to give you a bunch of information and clicking on multiple consents or trying to redirect me to your native app when I hit your website for the first time, everyone. And make sure you check out next week's episode where I chat with one of Ada's colleagues about his thoughts on where the web is headed, the importance of ethical web principles, and so much more. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, then you're definitely going to want to check out the next two. I'll be sharing even more of my conversation with Ada in a couple of weeks. I'm Stephanie Cox, and you've been listening to Mobile Matters. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until then, be sure to visit Limivate.com and subscribe to get more access to thought leaders, best practices, and all things mobile.